Hello out there, all you entrepreneurs and small business people. You are listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. The show has two goals. First, to share helpful information and resources. I don't know about you, but I've made a lot of mistakes as an entrepreneur over the years. And I truly, truly want to help some of you out there not make some of those same mistakes. The show is also intended to inspire. I found, at least, being an entrepreneur is confusing. It's often lonely. Sometimes you have no idea if you're on the right track or not or where to turn for great advice. So to help with both those goals, I have guests on the show every week who are willing to share their stories and their advice. And with me this week is Ashley Moy. She is the CEO and co-founder of a very cool company called Cast 21. They make, and I'm listing the words from their website, a lighter, hygienic, waterproof, and comfortable cast alternative to traditional plastic and fiberglass casts. And it takes only three minutes to apply and has a open lattice net-like design that leaves skin accessible. So I'll leave it at that, but I'm sure Ashley will amplify that. And my only comment is that I'm sorry that we are audio only. When I do the podcast version of this, I will include, I'm sure, a picture that will help you really visualize it. But Ashley's going to talk more about the product and her company. So Ashley, with that, thanks so much for being with me today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first, talk a little bit more about your business. I I did a little introduction, but talk about Cast 21, your product, and why you decided to make this product. Sure. Cast21's flagship product is a waterproof alternative to a cast or a brace, as you mentioned. We have the only product on the market that can be applied in seconds to minutes with no modern day luxuries, such as heat, water, electricity, or scanners. We're able to achieve a really nice moldable fit despite not requiring any of these modern day luxuries. And with that, we can also be able to be the only product that is really customly, uniquely designed for each individual patient, which we're really proud of. We started this company because our co-founder has actually been in over 60 casts and braces in his lifetime. Oh, no. Yep, that is not a misspeak. That is six zero different casts and braces. Uh, our well, co-founder what, uh, is he like evil Knievel or something, and doing motorcycle <laughs> stunts or what? Uh, close, a gymnast actually, and he was uh-huh. also born with a birth defect. And together, he's worn casts all over his body. And actually, he continues to wear braces every single day of his life, and will continue to do so until he has elected limb amputation. So, wow. Yeah, crazy, right? All right, but there's <laughs> there's somebody who knows the market. If anybody knows what it's like and the bad things about a traditional cast, this person knows. 100%. And we were talking about all of the hardships that he was going through and just as a passion project, we decided to try to create something better for him. And then on a whim, we decided to enter into a collegiate competition for new business ideas. And we won. 
And we decided to keep entering in business competitions as students at the University of Illinois. And we kept winning and doing really well. And that's when we realized we didn't just create a new product for our co-founder when he inevitably needed a new cast, but we have really disrupted a centuries-old industry and provided value for people up and down the ecosystem chain. Yeah. It, like I said, it's really too bad people can't see it, but do your best to describe it because it really looks kind of, it's very unique. First of all, I happened to see Ashley's product when I was down at M-Hub for their recent birthday celebration, but I love the cool colors, first of all. That was very cool. But it's got this like open lattice design. And talk more about that. Sure. For everyone who's listening and trying to visualize what this looks like, imagine the netting that sometimes comes around fruit. It has that diamond structure and it's stretches around each different fruit item and then really hugs or contours the different shapes of the fruit. This principle is very similar to what we use in order to get great fits around patients' bodies. But it's it's hard, but it's open. And so what's neat about that is it has a number of advantages. Uh, I'm guessing not only that it only takes a few minutes or a few seconds to apply and it's custom made and it's a cool color, but my guess is because it has this this lattice that the skin gets more air. Yeah, I'm guessing, which, you know, I mean, most of us have seen traditional casts that come off of people and their skin looks kind of like a prune or, you know, kind of yucky looking (laughs) underneath. So I'm guessing this lattice design helps get air to your skin and to, to help with healing. Is that fair? It's absolutely right that you can help get air circulation around the skin. What's really nice is that patients always say that our product is not itchy at all, which is partially because of those open lattice structures. What's really unique about this particular design is that air can not only flow around it, but other fluids like water when you're showering or maybe you're going to jump into the cold ocean can not only go over the product and around it, but there's spaces for this liquid to exit or egress the area as well. So it doesn't stay soggy on your body. Yeah. Well, and I noticed um, somebody had made a comment that it was great because you could still when your skin itched, you could still itch it, which I thought was pretty funny. But, you know, if you've ever had an itch that just was driving you crazy, it makes a difference, I'm sure. Absolutely. And what's nice about this design is that we actually eliminate a lot of the reasons why patients would scratch in traditional casts. We have patients tell us that they don't itch at all with this technology. And that's partially attributed to the fact that you can have your dead skin cells wash away. You don't have to have your Ah. pores clogged by uh, sweat or bacteria buildup either. Talk about how you design this product and then get it manufactured. You know, it's one thing to have an idea, but then to be able to take it and produce something that can be mass produced is another challenge, right? 
Absolutely. And also part of the fun, not just challenge of creating not just one product, but how do we create thousands, ten thousands of different products that can help people everywhere. So we take a balanced approach, keeping in mind the user's needs as well as the engineering necessities for the different products. When did you start the company? How long has it been in existence? Cast 21 has been around since 2016. We officially incorporated our business as part of an accelerator program. You and I were chatting just a little bit before the show started about the University of Illinois, where we're both alumni, go alumni. You know, they had a number of resources there. Talk about how you were able to tap into some of the resources there. I'm happy to do that. I feel so privileged that our alma mater, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, had so many wonderful resources available to entrepreneurs, student entrepreneurs in particular. It's so interesting when I left the collegiate environment and asked people for advice, they would always say things like, oh, go talk to your network or raise money from the people you know. And I was a college student. The person in the dorm (laughs) down the hall from me was not going to be able to underwrite a medical device company. Yeah, Um, no, you're right. And so having all the wonderful programs available through the university at no extra cost to us was a fabulous learning experience. They had courses that we could take. They had supplemental projects that we could go through. They had a mentorship program, as well as some really sophisticated programs for consulting and uh, accelerating and launching your business. That's fantastic. I'm glad to know some of my hard-earned tax dollars are going to support that. That makes me happy, actually. (laughs) So back to the the manufacturer of the product, how did you go from prototype to actually producing? What was the process like? Oh, my goodness. What a story there. I'll try to make it as short as possible. I'll start by saying when we make medical device products, there are certain standards to quality that are very important for the users and for regulatory bodies. And making sure that we partnered with these people was very, very important to us, mission critical. And so we reached out to different regulatory bodies to see which organizations were following the guidelines already and had the capabilities that we knew we needed in order to create the product that everybody's using today. So doing that process with the regulatory bodies was very helpful and helped narrow down our search for partners uh, in a really quick way compared to some of our peers. I'm not sure where this is manufactured, but I will say that geographically, you probably had some pretty good alternatives to at least consider locally, only because the Chicagoland area not everybody knows this, but is a pretty strong hub for medical companies and medical device companies in general, right? Oh, absolutely. We actually now uh, fast forward, what is it, six years? We are the manufacturer of our product. We're the listed manufacturer for our device. Wow. Uh, here in Chicago. 
good for you. Well, you mentioned the regulatory bodies. Is your product regulated by the FDA? And if so, how did that affect your timeline and I guess the cost to market? Oh, great question. So our product is registered and listed with the FDA. And I use the word parallel very loosely here when I say it's parallel to a clearance or an approval. So we did not have to go through the 510K process or the GMP process, which was very nice for us. But I would say to your point about the marketing is a little bit of a double-edged sword. So while we did not have to go through all of the hoops and hurdles that come with the 510K submission. And the expense, by the (laughs) way, sorry to interrupt, but you know, that's the reality. Oh, absolutely. The other side of that is we don't have that FDA clearance or approval when we go to market to say that this is uh, this level of regulation by the FDA. And so we ended up doing the tests anyways that the FDA would have required for a higher level medical device so that we could definitively and empirically show that our product functions as intended. It's a horrible process to go through, pull aside any of your friends or colleagues or friends of friends who have been through the process, and they will regale you with stories of how much it costs (laughs) and how long it took and how much back and forth that, you know, most people engaging with the FDA do not view it as a very pleasant experience. But as you say, once you have it, people go, oh, well, all right, then. No more questions. We know (laughs) you've already been through the ringer. So you essentially decided to go through the equivalent of the process to address questions from a marketing standpoint, basically? That is correct. Yes. So if we think about, I'm not sure if any of your viewers or listeners are familiar with the book Crossing the Chasm, those early adopters will always be really interested in trying new things. Mm -hmm. But for the healthcare industry, one that is very risk averse, data is a wonderful way to show that your product is functioning as intended. So who are your customers for the most part? I mean, the problem, as we chatted a little bit before the show, the problem with selling medical devices, especially new medical devices, at least in the United States, is that there's a lot of different decision makers and potential buyers, people that touch the process. So who are your primary buyers? The doctors and their practice or office managers are the people that we sell products to. So for any patients out there who may be interested in this, we cannot sell this directly to you. Please Uh, please do not encourage you to try to treat your own broken (laughs) by yourself. Yeah. see a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess what you have then is what some people in the business describe as a physician preference product, basically. So you kind of go around the whole mass buying process for hospitals and emergency rooms and things like talk a little more about how you navigated some of those touch points or plan to. We work up and down the chain, depending on the organization. If you're listening to this and also work in healthcare, you're probably rolling your eyes in agreement when I say no two healthcare systems purchase the exact same way. 
that they try to put parallel processes in place. In fact, even within healthcare systems, absolutely, departments will not even purchase similarly. Absolutely. <laughs> so we really took it upon ourselves to be bespoke and to be available for whatever the organization needs in order to ensure that the patient can get the product. So we maintain that flexibility. How do you go about selling and marketing your product? I mean, one of the advantages of these large buying organizations in our healthcare system in the U.S. is that if you can make inroads in one of them, then you're kind of on the preferred list. Going directly to the physicians, you can kind of get around some of that because they look at it, I got to have this product and uh, you know, a lot of them have enough sway in the system that they can do that. But the downside is that you're not getting to the masses as quickly. So talk about that balance and set of challenges. Absolutely. And you hit on something really important that I know a lot of entrepreneurs think about. How do I balance my speed to market and success there with uh, getting it to as many places with as many users or as customers as possible. And we made the conscious decision to not use the big purchasing organizations or the GPOs immediately out of the gates as we were starting as an organization. And this is a thought process that we had. First of all, we have a brand new technology. And while it's incredibly simple and quick to use, there is a learning process to this. Yep. The GPOs are not responsible for training the users. All they do is ensure that your product is in their catalog system if someone wants to buy it. And when we first started, we certainly did not have the sales force necessary to go out and follow up with all of the purchases that were made on these platforms. Right. Secondly, we really valued speed to data, speed to information. Ah. Negotiating some of these contracts could be very difficult and time consuming. Oh, it's it's all having done some of that in my past career. That's a nightmare. It's not something I miss at all. I can tell you. (laughs) Certainly. And we have heard some horror stories, probably putting it lightly, of some people navigating that process. And so for us, first starting out, we were able to get information, feedback more quickly going to the doctors themselves. And when we were first starting, that was way more important to us, the feedback, user and customer feedback than anything else. We needed to validate our hypotheses around our organization and around the product that we knew people wanted, but wanted to ensure that we were actually delivering on. Yeah. Well, did that result in any changes or did that process just validate that you were really on the right track? Yes, and. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and yes. (laughs) So as I mentioned, we really try to maintain our flexibility to be available for whatever the healthcare systems need. So we are in some purchasing um, programs, I guess you could call them, to be available for those larger uh, academic centers or healthcare systems, but we still will sell directly to physicians as well. Well, how have you found funding to do what you've done. You mentioned winning some pitch competitions, which I'm sure helped, and that you didn't actually have to go through the full FDA 510k process, but you did a lot of the work anyway, and still medical devices and 
you know, the, the just getting started and getting feedback and changing things. And uh, it costs a lot of money, more than you probably expected, right? <laughs> Certainly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I tell people now, however much money and time you think it's going to take, quadruple and double that, and you'll still be off target. <laughs> wow. So we had to go out and raise money. As I mentioned, we started our company as undergraduate students, and there was no way we personally were going to bootstrap this company <laughs> by ourselves. <laughs> Building a, a physical product company is expensive. Building a regulated physical product company is even more expensive. And so we yes. ended up raising venture capital, we did angel investments, and applied for public and private grants. Talk about the angel investing and venture capital process. I'd like to clarify for everybody uh, who's listening here as well. I think a lot of early entrepreneurs think angel investors perhaps are unsavvy or are willing to <laughs> give money earlier. That is certainly not necessarily the case. <laughs> it does not qualify anybody in any direction to be called an angel investor. I think the important distinction here is that an angel investor invests their own money, whereas a venture capitalist invests and manages other people's money. So similarly to us as entrepreneurs who go out and raise money and then decide to spend it on different items to be successful as an organization, a venture capitalist does the exact same thing. They raise money from others and then deploy it into different portfolio companies. You know, that that's an interesting observation. I mean, I think traditionally people think of angel investors as more early investors, more, I guess that's why the name angel came in as they took companies and helped give them some funding initially and maybe some mentoring and then it was later that you would be ready for venture capital funding. But that that doesn't sound like that was your experience. I think in general, we're seeing a shift towards venture capital organizations splitting. You're either going to do the later stage things where it's just growth capital, or in order to make sure you get great returns, the organizations are investing earlier and earlier now. And I will also add that at least in our experience, being an angel investor versus a venture capitalist does not mean that one or the other has more frequent or better advice, so to say. Ah. I would say the experiences are just different. And in either case, I encourage entrepreneurs to really get to know the investors that they will be partnering with. Well, and the other piece that's interesting is when you have multiple investors, it starts to become very challenging. I mean, it's it, I think in the idea world for a lot of startups, you'd have this one venture advisor that really took a lot of personal interest and was a, you know, very simpatico with your team and what you were trying to accomplish and kind of was always there to to support you at least early on and kind of step back as you spread your wings. But, you know, when you have more than one investor, more than one type of investor, I'm guessing that gets quite challenging. I would say the challenges are different, but perhaps not more or less with a single versus more investors. 
I think when people start having tension with the thought of having too many chefs in the kitchen, it could stem from unclear vision for the company, mm-hmm. in which case everybody suddenly starts to think that they know where the organization should head next. And if that mission and vision in the 10-3 one-year plan are, are really clearly articulated by the leadership team, it becomes more collaborative the in, at least the conversations from the investors around how to achieve those opportunities. And I love hearing the diversity of ideas. So for us, it's a welcome to have more people participating. That's good advice. When I saw and talked to some of your team members at the M-Hub open house, the only product I saw was for your arm or your wrist. Is that what the product is limited to at the moment? Correct. Today on, what is this? August 10th, 2022. (laughs) The only commercial product available is for the short arm, but very excited to be releasing other body parts soon. Well, I was going to ask you about growth. You know, no wonder venture capitalists are interested in your product because it is so cool. And it is an innovation in an area that frankly, not a lot has been changed in a long time, really, in the world of casts, I guess. Not to this degree. You could probably grow in a number of ways. You mentioned physicians' offices, but that's only a small piece of the potential market that's out there for you. I don't know how many million casts uh, Mm -hmm. our healthcare system puts on people every year. You probably have some idea of that, but you know, of that big market, are most of them emergency room? Are they physicians or urgent care centers? Where, Where do most of the casts get put on in this country? All of the above. And Doris, actually, one of the things that really excites us about CAS21 and the technology is that we have invented a platform that allows for flexible to rigid immobilization of pretty much anything, anywhere. So you're right. This is not just limited to risks as is commercially available today, or even the conventional places where we think of treating fractures, such as ER, as you mentioned, urgent cares or the orthopedist office, our technology could even be used on the sidelines or in disaster areas. That's amazing. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. And I'm guessing you alluded to this too, that although you started with an arm cast, uh, you got ways to grow because unfortunately people don't only get fractures or break <laughs> bones in their arms or wrists, right? That's absolutely right. And what's also really fun from a challenge perspective for our team is that humans are also not the only species to break their limbs. So sky is really the limit with our technology. Wow. I didn't think about that either. So are arms the most common breaks or fractures? The wrist region is the most common place on your body to experience a fracture across all of the age groups. As you split genders or age, sometimes that changes. Okay. Now you just mentioned, you know, my mom's in a nursing home and it seems like every week I hear about some patient that's had a fall and broken something. So I assume that might mean 
care potentially for nursing homes or uh, group care settings. Absolutely. That is so exciting. Well, that leads me to a question about managing growth for the future. Where do you see CAS 21, say, three years from now? How do, you decide, how do you decide which way to grow? I mean, there's lots of different things you can do. And it's yes. not just the U.S. either. Oh, we didn't even talk about all the places in the world that might also mm-hmm. might want this product. Certainly. So it is our vision for Cast21 in three years to be the go-to brand that doctors and patients think of when they need non-surgical orthopedic care. And so that means growth in several different directions, just a matter of prioritizing, as you mentioned and discussed uh, briefly, geographies and body parts and different subsections of the market as well. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. And is the next step for CAS21 if I understood you right, might be a product for another body part? Is that, I don't want to spoil your thunder, but it sounds like that might be in the offing. (laughs) Yes, we're very excited to be releasing a new product shortly. Cool. Well, let's talk about you. It's not like you were the chief operating officer for a couple of startups before you took on this role, right? So you've been doing a lot of learning and growing as you've been in this business. What part has been the most fun for you about being a CEO and co-founder? Ooh, I love this question because my favorite part of my job and the most challenging part of my job is people management and uh, managing human resources. I love my team dearly, and I take it as the most important responsibility that I have to recruit and retain the top talent that we can find. And it's just been such a joy to do that with such amazing people. Well, it helps when you have a very cool product and you have funding. That's certainly (laughs) very helpful. What's been the hardest thing about starting and growing this business? I think the hardest thing for me, besides that people management challenge, of course, because everything stems from your people, is the prioritizations of what needs to happen next. In an ideal world, if we had all the money in the world, and the perhaps a challenge that larger organizations don't face is how do you spend a limited resource and how do you ensure that it's going to take you to the next level to reach the milestones that you promised to your investors or your customers? Right. But that's certainly a challenge that we all enjoy. Yeah. There's never enough hours in the day, that's for sure. <laughs> no matter how much money you get or how long your hours are or how little sleep you think you can live without, right? Mm -hmm. There's just not enough. Talk about what a typical day looks like for you. Oh my goodness, a typical day. (laughs) If there is such a thing, I guess. I will try to generalize my day as much as possible by saying I start by waking up and having my morning routine, which always includes breakfast. I never skip breakfast. Good for you. (laughs) Favorite meal of the day. And then I put all of my meetings in the morning. And then in the afternoon is when I actually work on execution or new strategies. 
is that just when you find your energy is best to do those kinds of things? My energy is actually highest in the morning. I am a morning person for sure, definitely. My favorite time to work is before 9 a.m. But I find that if I can get all of the planning and all of the meetings out of the way and taking care of, then I have the capacity to focus as hard as I need to in order to meet deadlines. You know, as someone who spent a lot of time in the healthcare industry, it's always bothered me, frankly, that there are so many intelligent, bright, amazing women that work in healthcare, but so few who are in senior management and even fewer who are founders and CEOs of healthcare companies. And so I, you know, I was delighted to feature you on the show because you're uh, you're kind of a unicorn, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're out there and delighted to hear the successes for Cast Twenty One. But it still makes me sad that there aren't more of you. And I'm curious, from just from your perspective so far, why do you think that is? Are there additional challenges or different challenges that you face? Is it just a different generation that's more open to it? What What's your read on it? I would say all of the above. And certainly, I recognize how rare it is for me to hold the position that I do. But also, I'm really proud of the fact that our core team is majority minority, and we have a 100% female leadership team, which is pretty unheard of for Ooh. a STEM startup, specifically Good now. for you. Thank you. We take this challenge really seriously because we so firmly agree with the quote that talent is distributed equally and evenly, but opportunities are not. So how do we ensure inclusive environments? And we talked about and asked the question about what do we think some of the challenges are? The first one is the historical background and pipeline. And so when we recruit, we take it upon ourselves to think about what attributes do we want this next team member to have in order to be successful in this role? We don't ask what degrees do they have. We don't say, where did they go to college? How many jobs have they had in the past three to five years? Yeah. How old are they? Exactly. Exactly. What's the color of their skin? Any of that. Mm -hmm. We also score our resumes blind. It takes a ton of work to not feed it through a system that just reads for keywords. But we we score every resume objectively to see if a candidate is definitively and objectively demonstrating the skills that we said we need for this role. And we do that blindly. So we don't know who the person is, their name, gender, anything. Again, it takes a lot of work, but it's something that we feel really strongly about. We do skills assessments. So by this point, you're probably thinking, wow, this application process is pretty ridiculous. But we find that candidates really enjoy it because they're able to really let their skills speak for themselves. It is and it isn't because a lot of employers make mouth noises about saying that their people are their most important resource. And yet, if you were 
interview process, your hiring process is the first step is to shove them through some sort of keyword robotic program and you have a cookie cutter kind of approach to hiring. I don't think that sends a message even from the beginning that you're truly invested in these people. Your process says, yeah, our people are our most important resource. And we spend a really a lot, a lot of time making sure we find the right person because we care. And I find with this process, which, by the way, is adapted from Alita Miranda Wolf, who's also uh, in or was in Chicago for a while. She taught me this process. Uh, what's really nice about it is we don't need to hold quotas or specifically evaluate different resumes based on their backgrounds because it's blind. We remove all of that. And again, just let the skills and potential speak for themselves. Good for you. That's inspiring. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe the answer to the question I asked about how do we change that is one brick at a time, maybe. <laughs> Certainly. And I know you've been in this game longer than I have. And already sometimes I feel like instead of moving forward, we're maybe sliding back and forth. But it's something that really motivates me and my entire team to how do we get more inclusive teams and communities uh, to work together and solve problems together? And that's also why we created our product specifically to not need any modern day luxuries. Uh, access to healthcare is something we, we believe is a fundamental human right. Well, that's exciting because as blessed as we are in the United States, we may grumble about our healthcare system, but um there's a lot of people in the world who need your product where healthcare is, and places even in the United States still too, mm -hmm. um, that need easier, faster alternatives. Ashley, when you hit a rough spot, where do you look to inspiration? What inspires you? What keeps you going? What a great question. I don't know if I've had this question before. When I feeling like I have a lot to do or I'm hitting a rough spot, there are a couple of different things that I like to get through. Uh, first of all, my dog always brings me joy. Yes. Happy. Yeah, <laughs> so we're four dog, dog lovers. Good for you. <laughs> uh, I I love my little puffball. I have a small Pomeranian. Oh, cute. Certainly helps bring joy into my life. And on a more practical perspective. I am very much a list person. So when there is something challenging ahead of me, a what I, person? A list making person. Oh, a list making person. Okay. At first I thought you said lisp and I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I should remember I know, I'm like, no, that can't be right. No, no, no. <laughs> I need to pull back some of my, and remember some of my old choir and music techniques I have to keep going through the S's and pronounce the T's better. So I'm, I'm just teasing you. I'm getting old and I don't <laughs> hear as well as I used to. Oh, no worries. I like to make lists so that I can break down challenges in front of me and then feel a small sense of accomplishment when I cross off each step of overcoming whatever the hurdle is in front of me. I like that too. I, you know, I, I saw somewhere recently people were like, oh, you don't want to do lists. You want to prioritize everything. And, you know, because the list, it's too easy to just do the easy ones. So you got something to cross off, but uh, I find it, it's a, 
I think for me personally, too, it's a pretty good way to stay organized and to feel a sense of accomplishment. You know, there's always balance to these types of techniques for getting through your day or your tasks. So one of the things I remember the most from my college graduation is that our commencement speaker said, eat the frog first. And I remember that because it was like, eat the frog first. What does that mean? Eat the frog first. So strange. And they described it as doing the hard things first. Get the uh-huh. hard thing out of the way first. And that always stuck with me. So when I make my lists, I actually pair it with the frog system, the complicated, time-consuming things. But I also put another layer of project or task management over it. And I got this from one of my professors in undergrad who showed me this from the seven habits of highly effective people to make a grid uh, a T-chart, if you will, so that you can organize your tasks by what are important and urgent or not important, not urgent. And as you sift out the items in your list and you think about what is important and challenging and urgent, it really nicely prioritizes your tasks for you. That's something a lot of my entrepreneurial guests on the show have talked about, which is getting away from those urgent kinds of things that just are not necessarily important, but mm-hmm. are easy wins maybe, or feed some of our egos to feel wanted and needed. I don't know. We're all conditioned that we hear a texting and boom, our, our brain and our attention goes right to the text message, right? Oh, certainly. And actually to help myself stay focused. And this is something I share with my team also. I rely on a technique from my swim team days. We called it pyramid training. So in the pool, you would swim different distances, a small distance, and then take a break. And then you'd increase the distance, take a small break, so on and so forth until you reach your maximum distance and then work backwards. I like to do the same thing with my time when I'm having trouble focusing. I turn off all the ringers on the devices, and then I set a timer for, say, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And then after that timer goes off, I'm allowed to take a quick break. And then I come back, increase the time, do the same thing until I can get up to several hours without needing to take a break. That's a very interesting technique. I think I'm going to give that a try, Ashley. (laughs) That sounds great. Looking back on your journey so far, I guess it's been, what, five, six six years? Um, Six years, yes. Yeah, and counting. What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs or those who are thinking about starting their own company? Maybe especially women entrepreneurs, but maybe just in general. For women entrepreneurs specifically, I would say don't be afraid to ask for help. I think as women, we are so tasked to overcome so many different challenges and it can feel inadequate or scary to ask for help or making us feel like less than. And that is certainly not the case. What I have learned in my tenure at CAST 21 is how wonderful some people can be when it comes to offering help and taking you up on your asks for help. I've met some of the most fantastic, wonderful, generous people through Cast 21. And I 
credit a lot of what I know and what I can do to their assistance. So certainly be courageous when asking for help. And then in general to any entrepreneur, I would say, don't be afraid to define success for yourself. It can feel very uh, scary, I guess is the best word to say that when you have outside investors or you're looking at your competitors and how the market is evolving to use external benchmarks to define success for yourself. And I think when you're working for yourself, it's probably the first or maybe only opportunity one has ever had to define their own goals. You don't have a boss. You don't have a professor or advisor telling you what you need to do by when. So instead of looking at it as a scary or daunting challenge, enjoy it. Well, it's about um, taking risks. I mean, and being comfortable Mm -hmm. with taking those risks, right? And being, uh, I think one of my other guests said it, be comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, because if you don't feel uncomfortable, you're probably not taking enough risk. I thought that was a very interesting observation too. Absolutely. Well, last question for you. If people are interested in learning more about CAS 21 or maybe looking for advice to start up a company or a similar company or just want to get in touch or learn more, what's the best way for them to do that? They can learn more about CAST21 or request a product for themselves or someone they care about on our website, cast21.com, or learn more about us on our social media channels. We're everywhere at cast21official, and they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Ashley S.H. Moy. Ashley, thanks so much for being with me today. It was really fun to learn a little more about you and the story of Cast 21. What a terrific product. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing a little bit about that. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. Now, in the few minutes we have left together, I want to return to a theme we've talked about on this show a couple of times in the past, and that is the disparity in self-confidence or self-promotion or whatever you want to call it between men and women entrepreneurs. I was thinking about this this past week as I once again got ghosted by a female entrepreneur who was supposed to be a guest on the show. Now, for the record, I only have anecdotal information, but in the now three plus years that I've been doing this show, I have never been ghosted in a conversation about appearing on the show or been ghosted really in any way by any male entrepreneurs, not one. But I have been several times by women entrepreneurs. I've had lots of conversation with potential women entrepreneur guests where it's clear they're very reluctant to be on the show. We have an introductory chat, but we never manage to get the interview on the calendar. They don't get back to me. They schedule, but they cancel at the last minute or they say they're just too busy. What, too busy to talk to the media for a few minutes? Too busy for free publicity or the chance for free to showcase your business and your story? Now, I understand we're talking about entrepreneurs here, and that's a pretty unique mindset or set of personalities, however you want to look at it. But I've not had a single male. I had one, one, tell me, a venture capitalist, no less, tell me, that now was not a good time. He didn't say no. He just said he had too much going on. I, I, the 
disparity between male and female entrepreneurs has been really striking to me. So what what the heck's going on here? Clearly, either women lack confidence or they fear or are apprehensive about the spotlight or don't think it's important to self-promote. Not sure what's going on here. So I did some research and um, came across a pretty interesting study by the Women of Influence, great name, out of Canada. And it suggests that at least part of the problem is the underlying fear of negative consequences. So the study that I found documented that this really is a thing. They've even given it a name, the tall poppy syndrome. The term started out in Australia, apparently, and really referred to anybody who stood out too much. The idea being you want a nice uniform field of poppies and any poppy that gets too tall needs to be cut down. And since then, it's kind of been taken, at least in North America, to be used by women advocates to refer to highly successful women who get cut down. Anyway, in this tall poppy syndrome study, more than, and they studied 1,500 high-performing women, more than 87% of them felt that their successes had been undermined in some way in the workplace, either by their boss or by their peers. And no, this study only looked at undermining that took place in the workplace. It did not look at all the other places that women can be undermined for their success. And as someone who's personally experienced this, I believe this undercutting is even more painful and, and memorable because work can just be work. But if you have, um, you're undermined by little digs or uh, comments or things that you hear through the grapevine, um, people, things that you're not invited to, whether it's your spouse, it's your family members, uh, neighbors, people at your church, your friends. This kind of undercutting that happens in the workplace is really... And I think you'll start to see as I talk about some of the underlying things that they found in the study, it's really about, it's about people and women standing out. It's not about just the workplace. Um, So anyway, taken all together, I, I, I think what kind of happens is, you know, you put your fingers on a hot stove and you get burned and you do it a few times and you feel intense shame, you feel pain, and you stop trying to stand out. And I have to tell you, I personally, myself on a number of occasions, found myself downplaying a success because I was trying not to be a tall poppy. Now, interestingly in this study, and again, I have, I can only say it personally jives with my own experiences, men and women were found to be equally guilty in the undercutting. Now, the most common reasons that high-performing women were cut down, 
the highest ranking one was jealousy. Second were sexual or gender stereotypes, meaning women should be seen and not heard. They need to be hardworking, but put their family first. And the third reason was feelings of insecurity or inadequacy on the part of the person doing the cutting. So, as you can see, most of the cutting down that happened at work that high-performing women felt was more about the person doing the cutting than about the high achiever. But, you know, that doesn't make it uh, any less painful. It doesn't make the digs. It doesn't make the ignoring. It doesn't make the behind-the-back gossiping and, and uh, negative, uh, negative water cooler talk. I think this is really tough to overcome. How do you fix someone else's jealousy or feelings of inadequacy? Um, that's a that's a big one. And uh, I, I guess one thing that can be done is for managers to receive more awareness training of ways that maybe they unwittingly or even wittingly permit or tolerate some of this uh, activity in the hopes that it will slowly change our culture over time. You know, the gender or sexual stereotypes are slowly changing over time. My daughter reassures me of this. But, you know, this too has been very slow and is difficult. And look, just look at the national debate in the U.S. That about, that's raging about abortion. It is clear there is still a very large segment of the population in the U.S. who believe women should have less rights. They do not have the right to control their bodies. Now, you know, people can go on and on about, oh, right to life. But, you know, take that, take that whole thing towards its ultimate end and... I don't see how you get anywhere except women are less, at least in the business world. The implication is women are intended to bear and raise children. That's their sacred duty to do so. And it's their duty to raise the next generation of women to do more child raisings and to raise strong boys who can rule the world, which is the rightful order of the world, apparently, for many. So... You know, what can we women do, we high-achieving women at a personal level, to combat some of that pain, that knee-jerk reaction to lay low, not make waves? Well, one thing I found, I thought it was a really well-done blog on a site called Refinery29. I have no idea why it's called Refinery29. I love the name, but I don't know why it's called that. But um, the author wrote a blog uh, she's a woman, and she's, it's entitled, I Tried 30 Different Things to Boost My Confidence, and Here's What Worked. And what she did is she polled all of her women friends and colleagues and asked them for their best tips for things that had helped them boost their confidence. Well, hers is kind of a wild list, I got to say. I, I need to know some of her friends, uh, because on the list were things like trying naked yoga, Daily affirmations, that's not very wild. Stand-up comedy and skydiving. And, you know, you can take a look at the list and try some of them. Or just for funsies, you could even do your own poll of your friends and colleagues and come up with your own list to try. I think the key is to keep trying different things until you find things that work for you. You know, it... I thought it was interesting, but, you know, really probably not surprising that the list 
all 30 of these things I thought could pretty much be put into two buckets. One, continue to do things that are out of your comfort zone, some of them pretty far out of your comfort zone. And two, do things to better identify and control negative thought patterns. Doing things out of your comfort zone definitely builds confidence. Even if you aren't very good at it, with every activity you do, you know you have overcome the uncertainty, the speed bump that makes you say, I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, once you do that, you know you can do it. You did do it. You live to tell about it. Second, there is so much research out there that shows that this, the cycle of negative thoughts that we often have and that swirl around in our brains, often without our thinking about it, uh, really do affect our reality. Thinking becomes reality. And it is possible to change your negative thoughts, your lack of self-confidence, your self-doubt, and substitute those thoughts with something more positive. Now, I tried a bunch of things on this lady's list, um, and the blogger found, as I did, that daily affirmations do really help. For me, I, you know, I have all these ridiculous post-it notes all over my office and around the house. <laughs> my friends tease me about them, uh, but it's good-natured. Uh, no, the, I don't. I don't feel like they're cutting me down, uh, and if they do, they don't get invited back. But um, I, you know, once they the post-its fall off from time to time, and so that's my signal. It's time to change them out and uh, put a new affirmation up. So that way, as I walk through the house, uh, I work from home, I am reminded to think more positive thoughts about life and about myself. Another one that worked for me, and that th this is super easy, it was surprisingly not on the Refinery29 ladies list, but it came from another friend. And that was to simply smile more often. So a customer service rep is driving you crazy? Smile. Make yourself smile. Find the humor in it. You read something in the news that upsets you? Turn it off. Find a funny cartoon and smile. Just try it. It might work for you too. Check out my new YouTube channel that's dedicated to the show called The Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show. Listen to some of the past shows, download episodes, like or comment on them. The channel, I tell you, is chock full of amazing guests that are sharing their best free information and stories from their hearts. And I guarantee you will be inspired and you will learn a new tip or two. Be sure to follow the channel too, so you'll be notified every time I post a new interview. Again, the YouTube channel is called The Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show. Now, don't forget to join me again next week at the same time. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurship.